Hello and welcome to a new episode of our podcast Macro Monthly. My name is Hans Tegenman and with me are investment strategist Maritza Cabezas and Jori de Wilde. Together we discuss current economic topics and political developments and how they relate to sustainability. This time we will of course discuss the war between Russia and Ukraine from different perspectives. What it means for us personally, for the economy, but also sustainability transitions. And of course, we will have our standard items about the data of the month and the frustration of the month. Welcome. And as every time we start with the question, what struck you in the news this month? Maritza. Actually, I read recently an article on shipping costs and how that will affect inflation. If you think that about 80% of the world goods that are traded are transported by sea, And that there's a process when you take something from a boat, a ship, then it reaches the consumer. It goes to imports, producers, wholesale, retail. And that whole process is quite complex. But it appears that because of the higher shipping costs, that this will have very strong effects on inflation. It has been calculated that if the shipping costs double, that this can have an impact of around one percentage point on inflation, which is quite high. And the problem is that it is quite persistent. It Mm -hmm. would last about a year. And you would find also that after 18 months, you would still find the sequels of this impact. So I found this very interesting because that would mean that when COVID, we had COVID, that we haven't seen still the peak of the impact of COVID on the shipping costs. So Mm -hmm. we would probably see more inflation coming in time and that it would probably be prolonged still until next year. And this is a concern, particularly for emerging markets where inflation was already high, let's say, last year. And with all the developments in Ukraine and Russia, probably it will be higher. And the component food, as you know, is one of the elements in inflation that is surging now. Mm -hmm. And that will have effects, let's say, for the consumers in low-income countries who who will be struck more by this inflation phenomenon. Yeah, Yeah, I think inflation, for me, from a personal perspective, I was uh, trying to uh, bake pancakes for my kids and I was trying to get flour and it was all sold out, not only last week, but also this week. That's not only inflation, but it's also scarcity. And I think, Yuri, we discussed, I think, for over last year already inflation. And we also had a story, like every economist, it's transitory. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Is it still transitory? Well, I think um, we have to reconsider what we said, because um, indeed you see now that it is uh, really not transitory anymore. We just made an analysis in our new uh, economic outlook about uh, inflation for the advanced economies. And what you can clearly see there is that uh, inflation is really surging, reaching new highs. And with all in mind that is happening right now, we really expect it to be elevated all throughout the year. And what you can also see is that because of the scarcity uh, in especially Europe, this is a problem because of the gas uh, dependency on Russia. We really see that uh, energy prices are surging in Europe. This is less a problem in the U.S., But we already saw that in the U.S. there already was a a significant inflation problem, also with rising wages. So we really see there also uh, the difficulties of a wage price spiral. If we take a look, a tiny step back, and we um, 
Uh, so we're still on what struck you in the news this month. And of course, we have to talk about uh, the, the war and the economic consequences. We don't know. We really don't know a lot. <laughs> but is there something, Maritza, from your perspective, what we definitely can say what will happen also the coming months? Well, I think that we started this discussion about scarcity. And I think from a development economics perspective, scarcity is often man-made. And that means that if you don't have the right production and distribution channels, of course, the scarcity can be very serious. But if there is the right coordination among countries, among countries that have excess production, and that is brought to the countries that have less production, and that is distributed in a timely way, you can avoid food security issues. And there has been a lot written. There are Nobel Prizes that have been given out on this topic. So if scarcity is man-made, then coordination is the solution. And will that happen, that coordination? That's a crucial question, I think. Well, in the outlook that I have written for emerging markets, I point to, to the fact that investments are needed in key sectors for small and medium farmers, for example, to continue the production, to improve productivity so that production cycles can be better. So I think financing is a key element in breaking, let's say, this vicious circle of uh, scarcity. Yeah, I, I agree that, that that's a very important topic. But on the other hand, Yuri, if you take from your perspective, financing costs, and I'm looking at the interest rate policies in central banks, mm -hmm. it might be challenging in this environment to finance stuff when interest rates go up. Yes, definitely. And we, we do see a move up in interest rates, a significant move actually over the last few weeks. This morning we were discussing in another meeting <laughs> if we think that will follow through. And well, you can see clearly also within our in team, there's uh, really a discussion and there's no one definite answer to that. But if you look at uh, central banks, we can clearly see the direction is uh, upward for interest rates. So uh, policies will be tightened. And this will have an effect on, on uh, investments. On financing conditions. And mm -hmm. but, so we have a lot of discussions about, uh, so we look back for 40 years and so interest rates have been going down for, for like 40 years. Uh, but if you look at the real interest rates, it's, it's, it's currently at an all-time low. Yeah. So it is not that in an impossible that nominal interest rates can rise more than central banks might expect. So I'm talking about the 10 years uh, rates long term. What do you think? Are we underestimating some things there that, that markets can be more volatile than we expect? So we are so used to looking 40 years back and thinking interest rates, nominal interest rates can only go lower. Now they already are so low that they cannot go any lower. So will we, are we at a turning point? What do you think? Well, let me give it a shot, Hans, because I think that the inflation story was very benign in the past decades. And central banks were actually, with their independence, they could do a lot. And that seems not to be the case now. There are the drivers of inflation seem to be more permanent than we had thought. Then we have the shocks, COVID, uh, we mm -hmm. have now the, the war. And that makes it that it seems that There are some structural factors that are kicking into inflation and that will be a problem for central banks to be more effective. And when I refer to the more structural factors, I think that the disintegration that we are seeing in the global economy, 
that is probably one of the, the main issues also for inflation because before we could have free trade, products went uh, at lower costs, and that won't happen uh, probably in, in the near future at least. Yeah. So that is a... a, a a barrier, let's yeah. say, for central bank policies to be more effective. Yuri, what, what do you think? Do you also see a difference between, for instance, the Eurozone, at least in the coming one or two years, and, and the US? Yes, definitely. That uh, that was uh, something that was on my mind. Because also when you look at contributing factors to inflation, you can clearly see that the Eurozone is mostly now pushed up the inflation by higher energy prices, where uh, in the US that is not the most important uh, contributing factor. So in that respect, you clearly see a divergence and that could also be one of the reasons why we could see more elevated inflation for a prolonged period in the US compared to the Eurozone. We discussed a little bit inflation, a little bit scarcity. If we look at growth perspectives also for the coming year, given the war and the uncertainties, can we already see some direction on that? What what happened over the last month? Yuri, can you... Yeah, definitely. We've made a couple of scenarios in our in our outlook, <laughs> and um, um, in these scenarios, um, you can see that the the global growth is deteriorating even in the most positive scenario. So you can clearly see that the direction is um, negative because of the war. And do we have to fear for a global recession then? Only in the, in the worst case scenario at the moment. So we must keep in mind that the global economy was doing pretty well before the war started. So that is a cushion for the global economy for now. The next topic is what we call the frustration of the month. And for me, the honor to say my own frustration and for you guys to react on it. And my frustration of the month is about defense and ESG. It starts already with the name defense. Because defense is about weapons, about investing in weapons. And there's a discussion going on that people say, yeah, okay, those ESG guys, those sustainability guys, they don't like weapons and they don't invest in it. And that's almost the first thing they do to start divesting in weapons. But we need them now. So we need it for our social security. So it's really sustainable to invest in weapons. And I get irritated if people start in that way. Because... If you start, and we know it from history, if you start investing in weapons, so not in defense, so it's also offense, because it's weapons. If you start investing in weapons, if there is peace, people, weapons find a war. And if you have a military complex, which is really big, then it's not leading to peace. So it starts, uh, and that's our position uh, also as an investor, that you start with trying to prevent war, that you're trying to look for other means than only investing in weapons and in defense. That's not to say that we think people in Ukraine should not defend themselves, but it has nothing to do with sustainability. And I've seen a number of columns and people explaining, yeah, it is ESG. In my perspective, it's definitely not. Maybe answers a counter argument. It, maybe it's not ESG, but, but if you look now at the current situation and the lack of uh, weapons that are available to the uh, Europe... Is that not one of the reasons why uh, Russia is so aggressive? Because they know they don't have much to defend themselves. I think it's oil dependency. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they have power and power is not only, we as economists know it, power is not only in weapons, it, not, not only about military weapons, it's also about fi financial and economic weapons. Mm -hmm. And I think they are more powerful for Russia than their military, at least that's what we see on TV also in, in Ukraine. So your point is we should focus on sustainability and that will also be a power by itself. 
Yeah, it's about dialogue. And, and n- n- let's not be na- naive. As a sustainable investor, it's not our role to invest in it. So, and if you talk about ESG, it should never have a place in ESG. That's my position. Mm. That. Maritza, you also want to say something. Yeah, I think I agree with you, Hans. There's a very nice article written by Danny Roderick in a Project Syndicate. And he talks about the national security dilemma. And basically what he says is that when countries start being armed, it is very difficult to define whether a country will be defense, is doing it for defensive purposes or for offensive purposes. And if a country has to neglect investments in other areas which are very important, then there will probably be a higher chance that the country does not develop and that it goes more for the aggressive part, let's say, of the use of arms. And that dilemma is, I think, very, very critical in countries. And I think when I take the example that Yuri mentioned about Russia, I think that Russia saw that Ukraine was trying to get links, let's say, with the West. But for Russia, it was essentially a sort of a military links. And that caused this offensive, let's say, reaction which is actually not good for any of the countries at the end of the day. No, of course, I agree. But I think it's always good to discuss ESG factors. So let's be clear on that. And and ESG or sustainability changes always over time and is dependent on the situations where you're in. Also, especially the social component, it's different in emerging markets and in developed economies. But I think the discussion we had over the last month that defense should be part of ESG is is totally wrong-footed. So... I think we we more or less agree. Normally we would talk about what was not in the news, but should have been. And I think for now we can discuss a little bit more about the structural consequences of this war. What might happen to globalization? Maritza already talked a little bit about it, about the fragmentation and consequence for inflation. I think there will also be consequences on transitions. And Yuri, what's your perspective on this? Well, what what you saw in the news over the last few weeks is is really like uh, a recognition that maybe we are in a new phase that uh, is the ending of globalization as we know it. And there was really a call for uh, more regionalization and to focus uh, on Western allies to be self-sufficient. What I think is that that's, that's also uh, an illusion. I think it, it cannot be that uh, you retreat completely from the world. And actually that's because of two reasons. One is that uh, we don't have the critical raw materials necessary to uh, facilitate ourselves with all sorts of uh, production, also in the sustainability front. The second reason is that when you look at existential threats that we are facing at the moment, such as uh, climate change and loss of biodiversity, this does not have any boundaries. So we cannot try really by ourselves to uh, just become CO2 neutral. We have to really also help other countries to achieve their goals, such as uh, China and India, Pakistan, South Africa. These are uh, large emitters and we cannot uh, simply afford to just cut ties with with these countries. I agree, but... Can you not on the one hand say we try to cooperate on these global challenges, which is in everybody's interest, but at the same time cut to some extent your trade uh, relations? You can do it, but you can then choose specifically a couple of countries for which you feel that they really would misuse your dependency on them. So, for instance, Russia Mm -hmm. or to a lesser extent China. 
But if you do that very broadly, you overlook a, a very large part of the population that, that does not want to choose between the Western uh, countries on the one hand and uh, Russia and China on the other. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Maritza, what, what does this mean also for emerging markets? What do you think? You've mentioned the, the big countries, but I'm uh, concerned about the smaller countries. For example, there's Mongolia, Pakistan, New Caledonia. They're now very, let's say, hot spots for mining. And uh, in the case of New Caledonia, a very small country, but it's, it's supposed to be able to produce about one-tenth of the nickel that is needed. Globally. Globally. Mm. And so these are going to be commodity shocks for these countries in the good sense. But the question is, will these countries be able to manage? And uh, there's a lot that has been written about the resource curse. And there are uh, numerous examples. And the question is, how can we help these countries? If we already know a priori how destructive, let's say... Can uh, you explain a little bit what the resource curse is? Because... Yeah, well, uh, it's uh, countries that are dependent on a commodity. For example, oil is the traditional example. They export this and mm -hmm. then they get all foreign exchange for this. And that turns to distort the other sectors of the economy because then you get a strong appreciation of the currency. And that means that for imports, that would be, uh, let's say, less beneficial. And then the rest of the economy simply is annulled because you have a strong yeah, yeah. export for one commodity. And that causes a lot of harm and long-term harm. And there are many examples, but if we already know about this, how do you manage uh, that a sovereign country uses these resources in a, an appropriate way? There are stabilization funds, but with countries that have a lot of needs, it's, it's very difficult to tell them, don't use the money in the way that they would want yeah. to. No, but also on those critical materials and, and transitions, I think what's an important element, as, at least from a European perspective, is that an energy transition, so going more into renewable energies, means also using more critical raw materials, I mean also using more nickel and, and, and other things. Mm -hmm. And one of the ideas in, in Europe is, and also one of the strategies, let's go circular. But there are two problems with going circular, so using circular principles. The one is you cannot recycle everything, and especially when there are really small parts in different products, it's really hard to recycle. So recycling rates for nickel are no higher than 60% maximum. And the other problem is in a transition, you also need more. You cannot only recycle what is already there, but you also need more critical raw materials to come in. So that makes it very hard for Europe to become independent. But this is the negative part, but I think also on the positive part, this is really also a chance to speed up at least the energy transition. And I think if you take a parallel from transitions in the past, you can see, for instance, in the, the Second World War was the age of plastics. Then plastics were substitute for metals, which were scarce. And all our oil dependency is partly caused by the war, by the Second World War. And if you take that from another perspective, you can also say that this war and this situation can lead to another transition where you see, as always in the economy, where the need is highest, you see the most innovation and you see the most of the new plants. And what you see also with the incentives you have with the high energy price, you, you see it happening. Mm. And I think that's also a perspective we should not forget that we can also see positive things come out of a bad thing. And that is a little bit speeding up of transitions. Although 
Today I read in the news that the EU has struck a deal with the US to import more LNG, so liquefied gas, right? It's a substitute for Russia, yeah. so it could also move in the same direction. So a substitute one fossil fuel from one source to another. Also fuel. the production of coal yeah. goes up, but that's, that's a phase, I think. And I'm in an optimistic mood about it. <laughs> no, but th- this is normal, but it's still cheaper to go to a substitute close to what we now have. So going yeah. from one fossil fuel to another, because that's the infrastructure we have, but it's still more expensive than what we had before. So there's still also an incentive to do a lot about energy efficiency and to invest in, in renewables. And if that becomes also cheaper, and I think in the end it will, with the other argument of uh, geopolitical independence, well, let's put it this way. An energy transition is not only about sustainability anymore. And I think that extra argument to it can help to speed it up. With no guarantee. So I completely agree with you. It can also go another way, but that's, of course, that's also the way we just... We'll take a look at it uh, two years from now. Anything else on the transition and the longer term? I think we did not touch about, really, about the position of emerging... I'm still worried about what will happen with China and India. For instance, well, the thing is, uh, China and India are commodity importing countries, and if you look closely, China is not that reliant on Russia for its uh, imports of commodities. That's the good news. But the thing is that in the past couple of years, China was increasing its imports of alternative to oil from uh, Russia, meaning gas. Mm-hmm. And they have a lot of contracts also in the pipeline. And that was a good solution, a good option for China, who actually uh, uses a lot of carbon and a lot of, let's say, less green energy. But with the conflict now, the question is, what will happen? And uh, if you ask uh, China to take sides, it won't. It has a neutral position. But in a way, it would help the energy transition that it maintains, let's say, its ties for the sake of the energy transition and uh, its imports of gas. But obviously, there are many other dilemmas in this war. And uh, the question is, will China eventually take a more uh, defined position? Yeah, I agree. We don't know. And there are different interests and also maybe conflicting interests also from India. So maybe let's come back to it next month. Maybe we know better than what happens. Let's go to the next topic, and that's what we call the data of the month. In our earlier podcast, we forecasted the Global Happiness Index. Mm-hmm. It was released last week, so it was the 10th version of it. And Yuri said, what was it, Yuri? I, I guess that Denmark would uh, be the ranked first. Yeah, uh, and... It wasn't. It wasn't, so... Uh, it was yeah. Finland. <laughs> it was Finland. <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't that region, but it was, yeah. Uh, no. Yeah, but what we can conclude in, on the top 10, it's mostly Western, Northwestern European countries. S- Scandinavian countries. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And rich uh, people like us. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And that, that, I guess there was not a lot of change, right, in the top no, positions. No, the, the top was uh, almost the same. Maritza did a guess for the bottom, your guess was it will not change that much and Afghanistan will be the last on the list. It's a very safe guess. A safe guess <laughs> and yes. Yes, unfortunately I was right. Yeah. 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 Do we have a prize for it? Next time. Huh? Next time a prize. Yeah, yeah. We, have to, we have to yeah. bring yeah. something. I'm patient. I can wait. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
for me, there was also another conclusion, uh, which I think it's interesting to discuss also very shortly. This was, like I said, the 10th time that they published the World Happiness Report, and there was also a graph in it where they showed that happiness of all countries, size corrected, so taking population into account, and also taking the biggest countries and all kinds of emissions, of omissions and changes in, this, in, in how they collected it, uh, they took it out. And then the conclusion was happiness did not increase but declined over the last 10 years and as an economist we always look at also gdp figures and etc and we know that gdp with some shocks went in general up over the last 10 years so what what can we make out of this is this for economists any use this kind of data maybe what it shows is that economic growth is less important and that people themselves focus more on uh, yeah, uh, alternative um, sources of happiness. And if you look at the world over the last 10 years, a lot has happened, of course, and it was not all positive and that has clearly affected uh, the results. Yeah, if, if I compare 10 years ago to now for myself, am I much happier now? I don't know. It's I not- hope so. <laughs> you work at Triantos now. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit happier, a little bit happier. But, I mean, was the world a better place 10 years ago or is it a better place now? I don't know, no. right? Uh, no, that's difficult. That's, that's right. Maritza, uh, any thoughts? Yeah, well, I think that the more you know, the more you know you don't know. And uh, that holds, uh, yeah, in 10 years, you think you've learned a lot, you've done a lot. Mm. And uh, that's uh, in, not usually the case. And I think that people are realizing that GDP is not, the solution to all our problems and that we have to look at our environment, our uh, what the effects of climate change, and that brings concerns. So I can imagine that people are less happy now. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's of course, I agree with you. It's difficult to, 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 to take a, a general picture. What, what you saw is that, for instance, countries like Afghanistan with wars score less on happiness. That's quite clear. What's missing in this is the environmental aspect. Eh? This is about personal subjective happiness and there's a lot of other stuff, stuff going on. But it also shows that the correlation with GDP is not so clear and simple as, as sometimes is uh, thought. So it's not only about material well-being, although it is a component in happiness, because like we said, the top 10 is rich countries. Mm-hmm. So people are in general happier in rich countries. So it's a more nuanced picture, I think, on that. So we were half right, one wrong, one right. <laughs> but let's go also to uh, the data of this month. Last week, we, we do a Dutch one. We, we live in the Netherlands. So about consumer confidence in the Netherlands, what we saw last week when it was published, the consumer confidence that the mood among consumers deteriorated in March and that it consumer confidence is at minus 39 compared to minus 30 in February, almost lowest level Ever. Confidence was lower only in February and March 2013 in the Euro crisis period. And they were particularly gloomy about the uh, coming 12 months, so looking forward. And the war of Ukraine definitely has some effect on, on the mood. And my question for you is, and we agreed that we will start with Maritza. <laughs> Ladies first. Will it go up or will we in the end uh, have a new historical low consumer confidence in the Netherlands in April? Well, I think that usually these surveys are done with some weeks in anticipation. So I think because the war is still ongoing and when the survey is done, that there is not much good news for consumers yet. So I think it would go sideways. So it will stabilize it at, at low levels. 
Now we, we need a, an estimate. Uh, yeah. Minus Maybe. 30. Is it again the same as this month? A bit better, but not uh, not much. Minus yeah. 29. Yuri. So the figure now was minus 39. Maritza is saying oh, oh, minus... No, minus. Sorry, it was, uh, yeah, it, it was minus 39. Minus so, 39. So, tw- tw- minus 29 is fine. Maritza yeah, okay. is saying minus 29. And I have to catch up because I lost last time. So I have to say something completely different. So I'll go for minus 45. So that minus would be a, 45. a new record low. And I think you can make a case because the war will probably still linger on. Maybe it will even escalate a bit further. Inflation will be pushed up higher because of the war. So people in the Netherlands will will feel less secure and they need to pay more. So that that's not a confident feeling for the for the next year. Yeah. I can see your arguments, but it's better to end the podcast on a positive note. So I, I think it's better to to stay with Maritza. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, and I'm I'm a little bit afraid that well, well let's see. I'm let's I'm see. neutral in this. I'm neutral. Thanks both for our discussion. And next month we continue, and then we uh, come back to our uh, estimate, and and we have to think about the price. We also come back to that later. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to, to tune in next time. And you can subscribe to our channel, Inside Impact Investing, and let us know your thoughts.